HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Brandon Boy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. you dig it beatnik <laughs> it's just so beatniky i feel like i'm in a 1970s movie with jack nicholson <laughs> hip-hop beatniks cowboys punks i speaking don't speaking of punks we got a lot of punk rockers here today because apparently the only job they can get is in a kitchen <laughs> <laughs> that's not true but first or, or, or as host on the heritage radio network that's true Old punks don't die; they just come to Heritage Radio. That's a Heritage Network. Radio last refuge of a punk. <laughs> Before we introduce our guest, though, I want to introduce our very special musical guest sitting in today on the '88s, world's greatest piano player, Mickey Finn. He's one of plots whenever he plays that shit. I don't know. <laughs> He's the best. Well, welcome aboard the good ship, Mike and Judy, <laughs> here on the Lido Lounge. <laughs> Judy, who are our guests today? Well, we have some participants from Volume 1 Brooklyn's greatest three-minute food service stories ever. 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 That's happening on uh, Tuesday night at Housing Works Bookshop in Soho at 7 p.m. We have we have Dana Rossi, who's the creator, hostess of the soundtrack series. Mm-hmm. Welcome. Why, hello. Tobias Carroll, who's the managing editor of Volume 1 Brooklyn. Hello. Thank you for coming. Indeed. Make love to the microphone. Um, And we have Sean H. Doyle, who will probably has the most food service experience of anyone in the room. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And is trying to be a better person every day. He's trying to love himself every single day. And we can all all take a page from Sean's book, I think. 
I don't know. Some of us love each love ourselves <laughs> quite a bit and quite so, often. Some of us love each other's chronically. Yes. So, Judy, have you ever been a waitress? Do you have a food service story? Have you ever uh, slung ash? Uh, attended bar? Briefly, as a young, very young teenager at Christopher's Restaurant in Milburn, New Jersey. It was across from the uh, <laughs> Lord & Taylor shop that was memorial... It was made famous by many Judy Bloom books. Um, I worked the lunch service on Saturdays. My clientele was exclusively old ladies. I love the idea of you serving the old ladies from Lord and Taylor in Melbourne. Were you, were you like fully mohawked at the time? No, no, I was like I was like thirteen. I was, <laughs> that was that was pre hair dye, barely pre pre hair dye. But yeah, my thing was always forgetting the silverware and them taking it out and paying me, tipping me in small silver coins. I I think I never left the shift with more than like twelve dollars in my pocket. But you guys have better. <laughs> you guys have more illustrious food services. I think, I think those people at Melbourne, in Melbourne must have been from my tribe. <laughs> they, they were from every tribe. <laughs> there were the rich wasps, the rich Jews. You know, it was just like rich old bitches who did not want to part with their dollars. Jews are bad tippers, except for me, of course. Old ladies are bad tippers. Yeah. Uh, regardless, I'm going to stick up for your tribe here. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we begin? I think we should begin with Dana because ladies first. Okay. Dana, do you well, want to read an excerpt? Well, I'll tell a story. You want to set it up for us? Yeah, uh, sure. No, I'll, I'll tell a quick story. I had actually, uh, I worked in restaurants for 10 years, like from 1994 to 2004. And that was all in Pennsylvania because I grew up in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, which is this small like town. Like Jesus? Actually, there was an Italian. Did you know him? There was an Italian cheese store uh, in our hometown that was in like that was formerly known as Calandra's Cheese, but everybody called it Cheeses of Nazareth. Oh, Zing. Well, you know, here at Roberto's, they say proudly serve the Jesus Christ Pizza, one of our favorites. <laughs> hey, Mickey, can you give us some pizza music? <laughs> I don't know what the fuck that means, but <laughs> so so um, that uh, and and yeah, so so like my first restaurant job I got uh, was in. Like as well, Wind Gap technically, which was next door to Nazareth. Yeah, it's small town Pennsylvania, uh, and it was at this place called J and R Smokehouse, and I was a busser and everything. And then I went to Philly uh, to to go to college and everything, and then stayed you know for a few years after, and that's where I worked most of my restaurant jobs. And so when I uh, one of my first restaurant jobs in Philly was at a pizzeria Uno. And but that was like the first time I worked in a restaurant that also had like a full bar and everything. So it was like now I had to memorize, a, you know, beers and wines and stuff like that, too. And I wasn't used to doing that. So I would just write it on the back of my pad, like all of the beers and all the wines that we had. And this Pizzeria Uno, it's not there anymore, but it was across the street from the Curtis Institute of Music, which is like Philly's Juilliard. Um and that was all I'm going to say about that. And um, <laughs> Nikki, you didn't go there, did you? Yeah. <laughs> all of those students would come in, and they were the worst. Like they were obnoxious, and they were entitled, and like we would all fight over who had to take their tables and everything. So we had to eventually just do it in a rotation. And I came up once in the rotation. It's like, now I got to wait on them and they're all ordering their drinks. And, you know, I'm writing stuff down. And one guy was like, I'll have hemlock. And I'm not, I'm not thinking because I'm just, I'm still trying to memorize this beer list. And I'm like, Oh, is that Belgian? And like turn over, you know, my pad and everything. And he's like, honey, honey, it's poison. And then, like, gives an eye roll to the rest of his friends. And I see it, and I'm just like, oh, you mean, like, 
what, like, Socrates drank to, like, kill himself, like? And, you know, and he, he just kind of went, oh, well, I guess we got a smart one. Oh. And then everybody laughed, and I laughed, too, but for a different reason. And <laughs> because I was like, I, you know, and customers certainly have been worse to me, like, either they run you around or they can really be downright nasty. But for whatever reason, that really got under my skin because it was this thing of, like, that he's always going to be better than me or he thinks he's better than me. And he's always going to be in a position of power where I am, you know, some kind of subordinate. And so they had all ordered a bunch of pizzas and they were taking a lot of it home and they wanted it boxed up at the end. And so I took their pizza back to the kitchen, put them in all the right boxes, and then took the the compartment by the salad station because we had to put our own salads together for our own tables took the compartment that had anchovies in it and then just held the anchovies in and poured anchovy juice all over (laughs) all of their pizzas even lifting up some of the cold cheese to get it really embedded into the pizza and then you know just brought it you know back to the table and was putting the pizza boxes down and the guy that ordered hemlock was like you were fun and I was like you were too he dropped off the check bam I love anchovies. See, this would have backfired. Your revenge would have backfired as I love anchovies. If you like anchovies, you would have ordered it. Nobody likes them. Nobody hit or... And I wasn't going to do the thing where it's like, you put something poisonous in there. I didn't want to kill anybody. I was hoping for a tampon, personally. Yeah. Or it's like, you know, you tell the line guys to do something disgusting in there. Yeah. But... Yeah. No. I was going going down market myself, I have to confess. (laughs) Because, I I mean, if I'm really being honest, it's like, I don't know if, if you've ever done this thing where people get so adamant about, I would like decaf. Decaf. Decaffeinated. Can you be sure it's decaf? And then you bring it. Is this decaf? Is this the one from the orange one? Is this decaf? Is this decaf? Because yes. the most wired person in the place is the one that orders the decaf every right. time. And then that's the person that I would give caffeinated coffee to. And that's bad because people can have heart attacks. Um, but I've, I've moved beyond that. I'm also trying to be a better person today. So. I, think, I think you're doing good. Thank I would have actually... <laughs> For the decaf person, if you just put two tiny spoonfuls of cocaine in there, they're fine. <laughs> they're not going to die. They're going to live for a long time. <laughs> Similarly, why is it always the sickest looking motherfuckers who are lining up at the health food store? Meaning like really <laughs> gaunt and wan. And... You know, yeah. maybe if they went to the regular store, they wouldn't have to go to the health food store. <laughs> Sean, you got a story for us? <laughs> I, I probably have too many stories for you, Mike. Um, I also probably would have put two drops of Visine in his beer. Oh, the poopers. Oh, that was a good one. in the gas tank. Yeah, back in the 90s in Phoenix, um, where I was hiding from New York, I worked at a really upscale restaurant. There was a guy who used to come in all the time and just sit at the bar and harass my wait staff. You know, just typical sexual harassment stuff. And then he would harass my gay weight staff, too, which made them uncomfortable because he was extremely homophobic. But he had this weird drink that he always wanted. He made the bartenders make it for him. He called it a Kermit. And it was a martini with extra olives blended. Ew. He was just a, he was just a really sick, much like you were talking about, Judy, he was a really sick, rich man who didn't care. So I put two drops of Visine in his cocktail one night because somebody had told me about the trick, the magic V trick. I didn't think it would work, but it, it did work. And so... Hopefully he made it to the bathroom. He did, but it wasn't a cool thing, and I ended up, like, <laughs> making sure that I gave my busboy who had to clean it up, like, a bottle oh. of tequila on the house and some extra money. But the guy never came back. <laughs> so there's that. You win Mission sometimes. Mission accomplished. Sometimes you Everybody win. Everybody won something there. Yeah. 
But you also, didn't you serve food in the military? Yeah, and I was in the Navy. And um, when you're in boot camp, you have to do a week that's called service week. Uh-huh. And most of the time, if you're a boisterous pain in the ass like I was... Hard um, to imagine. <laughs> I know, I know. They made me go work in the kitchen. Um, and all throughout boot camp, you know, you come in at 4.30 in the morning after running for six miles and you're all dying and you stand in these chow lines and people are yelling at you and you're supposed to be quiet and be thankful and just move along with your tray. And then you realize that the people who are yelling at you are other recruits who are ahead of you in their boot camp cycle. So they're only like a couple weeks more than you. Three, four weeks ahead of you. And you start to realize that, and then you kind of look forward to the fact that you get to be that guy. <laughs> um, but the problem is, is that when you had to do service week and you had to do it in the mess hall, you had to be there at 3 a.m. Because they start preparing breakfast then. Ugh. Which, in some ways, was cool because you got out of some stuff the night before. But at 3 a.m., you're in this giant galley filled with these giant... Like, I don't know if you've ever been in a big institutional-sized kitchen. Like, these giant steam jacket kettles. That's how they cook everything. Yeah, I, so, worked in, I actually worked in my school cafeteria briefly. That was, so you get it, yeah. yeah. And you use these big giant paddles. And so I'm in there making, like, home fries in these giant steel jacket kettles that are, like... They're, they're basically... It's like a wok, but it's run on steam. And uh, so you make these home fries, and you put them out, and you go to the chow line, and these kids are coming through, and they look like they're dying. And you're trying to make them feel better. Like, at least I suddenly decided to make them feel better. Instead of the whole idea of being vengeful, I was like, I was like, come on, guys, you guys are doing great. Here, have some more starch. Have some extra bacon. Have this, have that. But then one morning they had me work in the coffee station, and I don't know what it was. I, maybe I was pissed. Maybe, like, the Bensonhurst to me came out, but... I thought it would be kind of funny to fill one of those giant coffee urns with coffee, but, like, also dump in, like, a bottle of Cholula. <laughs> um, and that backfired on me because my company commander, which is what you, you know, that's what a drill instructor is in the Navy. I watched him go over and get coffee from that very thing. And he knew it was me. <laughs> I'm picturing Full Metal Jacket. I ran 12 miles. <laughs> he made me run 12 miles with all of my uniforms on. Oh, my God. All of that. But I learned. How long were you in the military? Uh, I was in the military from 89 to 93. Ouch. It was nice. I got to go a lot of places. A lot of places Mike has probably been. I've never been to Iraq, brother. No, no, no. That's true. But if Sharky's Machine didn't tour there? <laughs> yeah. Did you guys play? Did you guys play in Fallujah? Yeah. Yeah, the Casbon Fallujah? Yep. Yeah. Oh, Great place. Yeah. Awesome. Cutest bartenders. Everybody looks good in a burka. So Toby, tell us about a little bit about your you have, you and Mike have the least food service experience in the room, I believe. I yes. go into the restaurant, I order the food. That's all I know how to do, you know. <laughs> yeah, aside from um, bartending at a couple of benefit shows for the East River Music Project a couple of years ago, I yeah can't really say I've done too much. But that must have been pretty fucking annoying. It it was very much like I would go. I was kind of in charge of procuring the booze for it, which was usually finding the second cheapest of various spirits at the closest liquor store and then just sort of mixing those with you know whatever mixers we had which were generally coke and orange juice 
and sort of progressively making stronger and stronger drinks over the course of the night at, you know, various DIY venues that in, in Brooklyn that don't exist anymore. And in one instance, uh, a friend of mine tricking me into doing a shot of gin, Ugh. which was really just a, a horrible, horrible idea. I mean, I'm not a fan of shots anyway, but gin? Yeah, I, I would tell that story and people would say, wait, you, but you don't take shots of gin. And I was like, well, I know that after having taken a shot of gin, certainly. Just like how you well, find out you don't drink bong beer. It's, it's, <laughs> well, it's not like getting past a dusted joint, nice, right, Sean? Some of us like getting past dusted joints. <laughs> that happened to me while working at a restaurant. <laughs> picking, picking up where the Mike and Judy uh, show left off, tell us about your dusted joint experience, Dana. Oh. <laughs> this was, let's see, was this 2002, I think, then? Oh, uh, so, a recent one. So we're... And, <laughs> Nearing the end of like my restaurant experience, just in in that ten years. But uh, yeah, I I worked at this uh, restaurant in Philly, um, and the one of the bartenders, I guess, uh, one of the managers would buy his weed from one of the bartenders, and then we would all go out in like this back alley and smoke it. And one night, it was just different. It was just different. And I, oh my god, and and awful. Just I was going like up and down and up and down all night. And I remember getting home and I had a cat and like would I closed the door to my room and there was a, a keyhole that I could still look out of and he's still staring at me. And I'm like, that cat's coming in here and eating me. And I started testing the durability of my bedroom door, like running up against it just to make sure that the cat could not get in here and eat me. And the next day I, I still was not sober. Like it took a while. That was to be. angel dust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No no doubt about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I uh, I actually handed Judy and Mike copies of this little book I made about the first time I accidentally smoked PCP. Mm. And I that was the only time it was accidental. Before you I did. You search you did? It out. Oh, I most certainly did. Oh. You and James Brown. Me, James Brown. Yeah. Um unfortunately like James got more use out of it than I did. I never understood him. He was James Brown, who's like 70 years old at the time, has had access to every drug in the universe, and at 70 years old, he decides that Angel Dust, PCP, is going to be his drug of choice. I mean, I don't see any possible upside to it. If he became a coke head at that point in his career, I would get it. If he became a debilitative drunk or a pothead, even if he became like a regular old-fashioned heroin junkie, I would understand. But what's the upside to PCP? Because I see none. Um, well, maybe James was just tired, man, and it gave him some extra energy. Instead of Geritol, James was rocking the Sherms. <laughs> you know? Tell me why you sought it out. Because we, we used to survey every guest. We stopped at some point whether or not they ever tried Angel Dust. And we were like like five to one having tried it. But I don't think anyone we talked to did it on purpose. It's yeah. like the one and only time. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. You know, um, I, I got past the Dustin Joint of the Roxy in 1984. That, you know, that seems more or less mean to do the actress upon which this story twirls. <laughs> right. Usually that's how it starts. Well, I, I think that the reason why... <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason why I sought it out was because it was the only way I could alter my reality. I didn't took I, I never took as a, as a teenager as like a dumb punk rock teenager. I was afraid to take LSD. I, I had was this, too. I was like, if a biker can make that in his bathtub, it can fucking kill me. <laughs> and you can't see it. It's you like don't a know what it is. Piece of so, paper. It could so, be anything. And I wasn't smart enough to seek out peyote or mescaline or even ayahuasca. I didn't even know it existed. So PCP was the only thing that could alter my reality. And, um, you know, I was in Phoenix then, and, you know, Cholo gangs loved their dust. So it was easy to find. Um, And I just, 
I enjoyed so it. So you trust like Cholo Angel Dust more than some benevolent hippies LSD? Yes. <laughs> yes. I, You know, weirdly enough, I see that. Kicks just keep getting harder to find. Well, I, I never, I, I've I never heard, I've never, heard, I've never heard of a cholo gang like going legit and opening a Wall Street firm. I've heard a lot of hippies doing it. Yeah, because they were taking LSD and expanding their consciousness and not like crashing on. Nah, dust. they just stayed familia homes. <laughs> <laughs> so, what can we expect on Tuesday night, Toby? You want to tell us who's reading? Tell us a little bit about the event. Uh, sure. I mean, this is part of a we do the sort of greatest three-minute stories uh, series, you know, every few months. Um, the last few have been at Housing Works. So, I mean, it'll be, you know, three minutes on a given story. Uh, I think, yeah. Um, Mike has read at the, uh, the, the Metal Stories one, which we did over the winter, which was fantastic. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, reading, um, uh, Sean and Dana will be reading, uh, as well as uh, Daniel Ralston from The Low Times, um, Judy Berman from Flavorwire, um, uh, Jason Diamond, uh, our, our founder and editor at Volume One Brooklyn, uh, Jesse David Fox from Vulture, Zach Lopez, uh, Jeffrey Oskowitz from uh, the Gefilteria, Jen Tullock, and uh, Sarah Gentile. We love Jen Tullock. Jen Tullock she's gone after us. And a big shout out to Jen. She's getting married today. No, she's getting married next week. Next week. Yeah, I made a mistake. Next week. But, uh, and apparently Jen is leaving the Heritage uh, Radio family at least to um, appear on um, Saturday Night Live and bigger things, bigger things for Jen. <laughs> we need to coordinate <laughs> Bigger things for Jen. Um, I was a bartender for a while. That's, all, that's my really only food service experience from just serving people. When I lived in Madrid in the uh, early mid-90s, I was a bartender and... Fortunately, it wasn't like a lot of cocktail culture. I mean, I can I can actually mix a good drink, um, but it wasn't, but not industrially, you know, or, or, or in that kind of kind of vibe. Um, so I was making a lot of Jack and Cokes, a lot of vodka and orange. But you know, in Spain, the legal drinking age is sixteen, and I was working in this rock and roll club. So on any given Friday night, depending on what band you play, it could be like a lot of sixteen-year-olds screaming for vodka and orange, which obviously got incrementally louder the more I poured. Was um, <laughs> since they since they um, started younger than like the, the the whatever you call it they say that kids can handle it better when you start when drinking is more normalized when they just start whenever yeah I'll tell you what you know it wasn't it wasn't so bad actually I mean kids ooh pizza's uh, here um too bad it's not television people could be jealous of our pizza. really really the, the, the worst of the, of the drunks in Spain is like one night um when I did a guest bartending stint uh, at another friend's bar and I decided it should be cocktail night which make martinis and listen to Frank Sinatra and Duke Ellington and I had all these jazz records that no one really had at the time in Madrid it just wasn't you know part of the you know hip proto hipster culture whatever said let's do some martinis and you know and play some uh you know duke ellington records and we did and a lot of people came out to it and people got dressed up for it it was nice but no one in spain had ever actually drank like you know five ounces of vodka you know one shot in a big martini glass and no one knew how to hand no one knew how to pace themselves or to drink two martinis they just thought it was like everything else they drank which you drink copiously and quickly and in quantity um, in Spain, and that was bad. Those are the adults. This is a bunch of thirty-year-olds, like you know, falling on the floor and vomiting. The kids are all right. <laughs> I have a, can I ask a question? Of course. How do people tip in Spain? Because I, they don't. When, okay, well then I guess it was I, true because you know when a lot of times you would get uh, you know European clientele and you would get no tip, and, and a lot of times it was like that they you know it was always something we were told it was like well it's cultural like they don't really know. 
to to tip well, and I would think like, do they? It's a, is it Does likely they not, though when you like have a let's go Billy book? Yeah, I know. Seriously. Like, <laughs> well, we were talking about this earlier on on uh, Patrick Martin's uh, show, the main course earlier today. Um, we're telling uh, restaurant stories, and Europeans who eat dinner in, in American restaurants and use that cultural bugaboo as an excuse not to tip, and they know yeah. fucking. F- fucking well that we tip here 20% in a good restaurant without fucking fail but oh I'm from France we don't do that I didn't know and they use that as an excuse to to walk out you know on on tipping how do you deal with a bad tipper on the other hand you know it's weird because I I feel we were so hardwired to tip that you know being um, you know in in Europe it's very weird not to and even when you round it up even a cab fare when it's you know four and a half euros and you give the guy five euros he's I mean that, that's considered like a real nod to his you know ability and competence as a cab driver he's not used to that yeah I don't know if I'm allowed in Europe but I would tip if I was there <laughs> I think I saw your photo at the border to yeah. Europe at the border of Europe in the middle of the ocean I think came over I think plane. maybe restaurants should kind of like take up the whole like tattoo shop idea like at the front door as you walk in there should be a sign that says tipping is not a city in china <laughs> well some some, some restaurants do. have it on the receipt now it's like right 20 15 yeah. 10 we and used some, to do I, that where like if it was a party of seven or more it's an automatic 18 percent right. gratuity and things like that but i've run into the same thing like and when europeans actually and i'm not please not bad-mouthing europeans but when they did tip, it was always like 7%. Because they didn't get it. They yeah. didn't really get it. They tried. But, you know, my servers were always like, what the fuck is this shit? And I'm like, just be thankful you have a but job, But the system man. works, <laughs> you know, largely. I mean, I mean, it's not just in, in Spain, but in Germany, Italy, and France. Because the servers are getting paid a living wage largely yeah. there. Right. Unlike here. So it's a different system. Well, nobody and, gets paid a wi- living wage here. Yeah. I know. Now, pe- horrible people do, apparently. Pay school teachers. Well, yeah. That would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is taking a turn. But I want to talk about... <laughs> hey, Mickey, hit me with that Mr. Softy music, because I want to tell you the food service job that I always wanted. I always dreamt of dealing drugs off of an ice cream truck. Like Steve Buscemi and Trees Lounge. Well, I forgot about that. Joe was telling me before, Joe the Engineer, didn't you have a guy who dealt dope off of like the, yep. the Good Humor truck? In uh, Maryland, Lutherville, Baltimore suburbs. <laughs> Ice Cream Joe, not me. Ice Cream Joe would, uh, you know, drive around with the, the nice little music and uh, sell some uh, pretty good heroin, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I want to keep it to the dope. Just like, I mean, playing pot, pot. Well, they did that on Shameless, too. That was their... Um... Oh, it's not an original idea. I mean, this yeah. is part of American culture. You know, but I just think it's something, how did I miss my calling for this? I don't know, Mike. <laughs> Time to quit the book business and buy yourself, a, like, a Skippy truck. That was what our ice cream guy was in Rochester, Skippy. We had someone tell a story at Soundtrack Series once about how he was an ice cream man. Like, one that sold ice cream. A good um, one. But what was great was that there was, like, a turf war situation amongst like the ice cream men in South Jersey and then it did it eventually disintegrated into like a showdown do not where they fuck actually with Mr. Softy. physically fought you know like like each other the rival ice cream men why don't you tell people about soundtrack series so they can go see it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're like running out of time and I want to plug everyone's oh, no. stuff. Yeah, we no. need to get Mickey's thing in too if you're doing anything. <laughs> Soundtra- <Yep. laughs> soundtrack series is uh, people come and, and tell stories about songs that were significant to them that somehow provided the soundtrack to their lives. For the guy that told the ice cream truck story, his was the entertainer because that was like oh, playing God. on loop. 
in the ice cream truck. But yeah, it's how a song provided a soundtrack to a moment in your life. And on Friday, this coming Friday the 18th, we're actually going to be at the Museum of the Moving Image in Astoria in Queens, uh, but doing stories about music videos. So how, you know, music videos uh, left a mark on you or one that was, you know, particularly significant. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a live show in New York and in Austin, Texas, and also uh, a podcast on iTunes and... It's well, fun. We love the soundtrack series, and we love Volume 1 Brooklyn. Uh, Toby, yeah. Tobias, tell us more about that. We're, and remind us again, uh, the gig, the best, greatest three-minute food service stories ever, and I can testify this is a great series. Uh, tell us about it, where it's going to be this week. Uh, this week it will be at the Housing Works Bookstore Cafe on 126 Crosby Street in Manhattan, beginning at 7 p.m. And yeah, Volume 1 uh, is a website. Uh, we do uh, fiction, nonfiction interviews with musicians, authors, etc. Um, we yeah, again we we publish fiction and nonfiction every Sunday and occasionally throughout the week as well in addition to everything else and we do uh, events pretty regularly including uh, what we've got coming up. Do you have a website and uh, internet uh, presence? Yep, yeah, uh, VOL the number 1 brooklyn.com and we're on Twitter and Facebook as well. Sean, Sean where can we find you? Jail. <laughs> Not anymore because you're loving yourself and being a good it's person. It's true. You can find me online at SeanHDoyle.com or you can find me on Twitter. I'm not one of those people who hides behind like a weird fake name. You can find me anywhere at any time with just Sean H. Doyle. I'm easily found. And Mickey Finn. <laughs> All right, next week we're going to um, uh, talk about a gig me and Mickey have coming up. And once again, it's been the fastest half hour on the internet today. Judy McGuire. Have a great week. It's thanks awesome. for coming, you guys. Thank you. Thanks for having All us. right. Thanks to everybody listening. Roberta's Heritage Radio Network. Joe, the engineer. This is Mike Edison. Virginia McGuire. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>